It really is a difference between white women and black women. And I've dated both. Yes, I have. During the 1970s, Richard Pryor was the biggest comedian on the planet. But white women take more shit. Like, you be at home, you know, and shit. You get ready to go out, and you say, I'm going out, baby. Take it easy. Okay. Have fun to look. You say that to a black woman, the bitch start dressing, too. Richard delivered that joke in 1975. The next year, he met Pam Greer. Freddie Prinze introduced them. First time I met him, it was with Freddie. We were going to see him and get some liquid cocaine. Richard was a known womanizer. Pam piqued his interest. The feeling was not mutual. He had acne, bad acne. And I wanted to say, but I didn't, you're a lot smaller than I thought you were and a lot skinnier. Richard Pryor owned guns. He spent time in jail and he had a drug problem. I snorted cocaine for about 15 years. I must have snorted up Peru. His comedy was about drugs, crime, police, and sex. And you get weird sexual fantasies, too, when you be on coke. He mocked both bigots and the black community. He did skits about slavery. No topic was taboo. No words were off limits. He was totally unpredictable. <laughs> Richard was a performer who didn't write. But what he did do is he had a lot of, um, we'll call them premises, okay? Rich worked off of bullet points. This is Rocco Urbisi. He produced Richard Pryor's TV specials. So when you wrote for Richard, you gave him premises, and he would take it another level. He'd explode it into another level. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Pryor. His album sold millions. His TV appearances were legendary. And in 1977, he got his first lead role in a movie, playing Wendell Scott, a bootlegger who became the first black driver in NASCAR. Warner Brothers presents Richard Pryor in Greased Lightning. Greased Lightning was a big-budget production and a huge opportunity for Richard Pryor. He could have cast anyone he wanted as his co-star. He wanted Pam Greer. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer and how she rose to become the queen of blaxploitation films and Hollywood's first female action hero. This is Episode 6, I'm Gonna Die for Paul Newman. In Greased Lightning, Pam was cast as Mary, the wife of race car driver Wendell Scott. It was a supporting part, but it was her first role for a major studio, Warner Brothers. The movie was shot in the South, about an hour outside Atlanta. When Pam landed in Georgia, the producers asked her to go visit Richard Pryor, say hi to the star. When she got there, he was throwing a party for the crew. He rented a big house, a farm with a pond. It had like a crappies and sunfish and maybe some bass or something. And he was teaching the crew and cast how to catch fish for a fish fry. 
Pam wasn't in a partying mood, but she knew how to fish. Apparently, Richard did not. I knew that he was not teaching people how to tie hooks onto lines and sinkers. So I went over and showed him how to do it. And he says, you know how to do that. Yeah. Have you ever been fishing for catfish in the North and Platte River or this and that? Were you fishing for sunfish, crappie? or He goes, he's going, wow, wow. You know, he was so impressed that I knew about that. I said, I don't know any black women that knew anything about fishing. And I said, well, you do now. By the time Pam joined the production, Grease Lightning was already several weeks behind schedule. The main reason was Richard Pryor. He'd show up late to the set or not show up at all. When he was there, he didn't know his lines. The studio fired the director, Melvin Van Peebles. In came a new director, Michael Schultz, who had worked with Richard before. I think they were about at least one-third or maybe half finished shooting. And uh, when I get there on location, Melvin is addressing the crew and introducing me. And the crew wants to walk because they're backing Melvin. And Melvin said, no, no, no. This is a good brother. You know, stay here, finish the film. And then Richard presents me with a gift, right? A 30-30 rifle. <laughs> you know, the kind that you, the westerns where you cock the thing. And it's engraved. I hope you shoot this better than you shoot movies. Because <laughs> we're in Georgia, boy. <laughs> Michael Schultz had no idea what he'd gotten himself into. Richard Pryor was only one of his problems. The locals didn't want this Hollywood production with a black director and a black cast and crew in their backyard. So my very first day of shooting, we're shooting in the house and I'm working with Richard and I'm working with Pam and Bo Bridges. And the house was a couple of doors down from an automobile repair facility. And every time they would hear action, they would rev up the engines and they would make as much noise as they could. And so I had to change the routine. So I told the crew, when I say cut, that's action. <laughs> and when I say action, that's cut. And uh, we got through the day of shooting without the good old boys figuring it out. Cut. Dress it. Stand by. One day, they were supposed to shoot a wedding scene, a short moment in the film where Pam and Richard get married. Pam's wearing a white floor-length wedding dress, long sleeves, heavy fabric. The location was a small church, no air conditioning. The extras had fans to cool themselves. Pam was stuck holding a bouquet of flowers. I'm on the set waiting for Mr. Pryor. Where is he? We're waiting for Mr. Pryor. Why? Go get Mr. Pryor. Get him out here now. He comes out to the set. Everyone's hot and fatigued. He comes on the set. Hey, <laughs> okay, you ready to rehearse? Yeah, sure. No. Richard didn't know his lines. He could tell Pam was fuming. 
So he picks up a cooking fork that's in the kitchen, and he does like this to my face and my eyes. Pam is gesturing with an imaginary fork. Richard waved the fork right in front of her, poking it in her direction. He's like that far away from my face. And I explode on him in front of everybody. I knock it out of his hands, and I curse his ass out. And I said, how dare you keep us waiting for you all day? Who do you think you are? You're about to put all of us out of work. I, I went, read him the riot act. And I said, go learn your lines, and I'm leaving the set, and I'll come back when you're ready. I walked off the set, and the crew applauded. I guess she told me. Pam goes straight to her trailer. She slams the door and strips off the wedding dress. It's covered in sweat. All my clothes are hanging up everywhere trying to dry out. And so I get a knock on the door. Uh, Miss Pam, Miss Pam, Richard Pryor said he's ready. So I hurriedly get dressed before he changes his mind. Richard is waiting for her at the altar. He's in costume, wearing a tuxedo. The crew is silent waiting to see what happens next. And he didn't apologize. And he says, he said, I'm ready. He said, I'm ready. I learned my lines. I'm ready to go. He started calling me like coffee, Foxy Brown. He's like, you know, he's getting his on. He was doing his thing. And I just stood there and I said, uh-huh, let's go. And if you do this again, don't worry about me coming to the set. I ain't playing with your ass. And that's when he said, that's when I fell in love with the bitch. Coming up, opposites attract when Pam tries to save Richard from himself. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They're going to kill you, Wendell. And that's the truth. The truth is, Mayor, I'm tired of lying to you and I'm tired of lying to myself. I'm going to be a race car driver. After the wedding scene, Pam started to respect Richard. She enjoyed his company, especially in the morning. He was gentle, humble. That's before he went to his trailer and got high with his friends. They were playing a married couple, a surefire recipe for romance. Their scenes together were electric. Well, they had the chemistry. 
So all they had to do was say the right words. <laughs> I don't think they worked hard to hide it. <laughs> no, they were a hot item. Their affair wasn't planned, but it certainly helped the movie. To win Pam's heart, Richard behaved like a professional. I think that Pam was like the organic queen. She was really cleansing Richard, and he was all into it. I mean, he was so in love with her that she stopped him smoking. He wasn't drinking. He was on a real healthy kick. And I'm looking at this and saying, wow, this is great. <laughs> I hope it keeps up. So she was a real good influence on him. When Grease Lightning wrapped, Pam and Richard continued to see each other. They were an unlikely couple. Pam, the country girl who was happiest with her horses, and Richard Pryor, who told jokes about his cocaine addiction. I started off snorting little tiny pinches. Said, I know I ain't gonna get hooked. Not on no coke, you can't get hooked. My friends have been snorting 15 years, they ain't hooked. <laughs> I started snorting little teeny, didn't even make noise. Six months later. Richard's greatest talent, I think, was finding a way to express in humor very painful things that were going on in his life. And he was able to laugh at it and make you laugh at it. And it crossed all racial barriers and went right to the heart of human condition. Richard was very, very vulnerable. In 1977, Richard Pryor was at a crossroads. He was only 36, but he'd been doing drugs for decades. His body couldn't take the abuse anymore. He told Pam he wanted to get clean. Richard had a difficult childhood. His mother was a sex worker. His father, a pimp. We lived in a, I guess you call it a brothel. We called it a whorehouse. Yeah. This is Richard on the Dick Cavett Show. I had a problem with that, finding out that people lived another way. When I got to grown and we moved, yeah. and I met kids that didn't know about that at all, and didn't talk like I talked, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I, I couldn't understand it. And it took me a while to stop hitting on their mothers. <laughs> he was raised by his grandmother. She owned the brothel. He was deprived of things most kids take for granted. I had a bike on the bike rack of my car, my Jaguar. And he said, you know, I never had a bike. I would love to have a bike. I want to learn how to ride a bike. I said, okay, let's go down to Venice and buy you a bike. So we went down to Venice Beach to a bike shop. And I told this, this young man, that, you know, can we fit him up with a bike? And we did. And when he got on that bike and wanted to try in front of me, knowing he's going to fall, and the guy held the back while he pedaled. And that instant, he found his balance. And he looked, he wouldn't stop, he just kept cycling. And everyone in this shop, we were just like seeing him change. Let's go, let's go down the bike path. Come on, let's go, let's ride. And he said, but don't tell my homies you saw me on a bike. I said, I won't tell them. But he loved that. Pam put Richard on a strict routine. No more sleeping until 2 in the afternoon. From now on, they got up at 7, had a healthy breakfast, and played tennis. 
It may sound strange, but biking and eating oatmeal together helped Richard open up to Pam. It brought them close. He accepted my gift of teaching him. And would he have done that with a man? No. He didn't. He allowed me in. So that made me feel connected. Pam learned things about Richard that he had kept secret, like the real reason he never knew his lines. I found out Richard could not read. He could only learn his lines phonetically. So he had a problem with rehearsing and reading his lines over and over and over again. Pam helped Richard learn to read. But Richard wasn't always easy to be around. He was temperamental and competitive. Time Magazine reported that Pam once beat Richard in tennis, two games in a row. After that, he wouldn't speak to her for a day. And he had a habit of isolating the people he loved. Were you in love with him? At times, not consistently. There are days that you just say, I choose you, and days I don't choose you today. Okay, I'm going to share a story with you. This is Rocco Urbisi, Richard's TV producer. I got a call on a Sunday afternoon. So my phone rang. I hear Rocco. Rocco, can you come out and visit? I said, sure, you okay, Rich? Yeah, yeah, come out. Can you? Sure. So I drove out to Northridge. The gate is open. I pull into the driveway. There's no cars there, just his yellow Rolls Royce. I walk into the house. I take the stairway up to the little office we used to write in. And as I'm walking up the stairs, I hear, We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. I walk into the room. He's facing the TV, laying down on the couch. And on my desk, where I used to be with him, was a glass of Cavassier. He waved to me. We watched The Wizard of Oz. And when it was done, he got up and he said, thanks, Rock. Gave me a hug and I went home. It was lonely. All great artists are lonely. Meet Leroy Jones. After Greased Lightning, Richard Pryor went to work on another movie with Michael Schultz called Which Way Is Up. Richard Pryor. I heard that. Not only did Richard star in the movie, he wrote it with screenwriter Carl Gottlieb. Which way is up? I've known Richard Pryor a long time. We go back in comedy to Greenwich Village days. Richard lived his life in cycles. He'd be healthy for a while, and then he'd fall off the wagon and start snorting and shooting and abusing himself. So when I first met him, he was depressive and doing drugs. Next time I met him, he was with Pam and being healthy. I often wonder if if she considered him like a rehabilitation project. Let me see if I can take this guy who's full of himself and he's been like this, you know, self-destructive all-star for so long. Let me see if I can, you know, if I can get him to eat right and play sports and pay attention to his body and what he puts in it. Writing Which Way Is Up wasn't easy. Richard was full of ideas, but often got distracted. Carl needed him to concentrate on the screenplay. They decided to leave the country to write in isolation. Someone rented us a villa in Barbados. 
where my wife and I and Richard and Pam went to live. We're sitting like in the patio with lawn, lawn furniture and this lush tropical vegetation. And I think there was a catered bungalow. So I think there was staff, at least a housekeeper and possibly a housekeeper and a cook who were taking care of us. I mean, it was kind of idyllic. One night in Barbados, the cook prepared a meal with shellfish in it. Pam is allergic to shellfish. She had a terrible reaction. Her lips and her tongue swelled up and she had difficulty speaking and she had a rash over her body. And Richard panicked. I mean, he didn't know what to do. His, his only solution was like some folk remedy from his distant grandmother past. He just like covered her in talcum powder, which you know, didn't help. He's thinking I'm going to die. And I know I'm not going to die. And I feel vulnerable that he's never been around anyone sick. And that is alarming to me because he can't save me. I have to save myself. The man in my life doesn't know enough to save his child, his children, or me. Luckily, my wife is one of those women who travels prepared for any eventuality. So she recognized what Pam was going through was an allergic reaction. So my wife gave her some Benadryl, a simple antihistamine, and within an hour or two it cleared up. It was she was fine. Pam made a full recovery, but she never forgot Richard's panicked response, his inability to act. I realized I would have more responsibility in the relationship with him. I could be concerned if I ever went away to work what could happen to the horses or his children or him. The rest of their time in Barbados was uneventful. Carl and Richard finished the screenplay. When they got back to Los Angeles, Richard asked Pam to move in with him. Pam said no. He was on drinks, protein drinks, just eating very healthy. His skin cleared up. He used to have acne cleared up. His hair started growing back. You know, and then one day he said, hey, I'm strong. I can invite my friends. I think I said, are you sure? They're pretty tough. What if they pull out Coke and get you to drink? No, that's not going to happen. When I came home, it was happening. He was drinking, and there was a line of Coke on the table. Pam confronted Richard. She called him out in front of those friends. Are your friends going to take care of you? They don't bring food. They drink everything up. What are they going to do? And that's when the brother said, you're going to let your woman talk to you like that? And Richard looked over and saw the knives on the sink, and he looked at them, and then he looked at me, and he said, I've known them longer than I've known you. Richard had fallen off the wagon, hard. Around this time, Pam went to the gynecologist for a routine checkup. The doctor called her into his office and closed the door. And they said, is someone you're dating doing coke? Maybe did for a long time. Maybe have stopped. I don't know. Pam had cocaine in her system. She never did drugs. The doctor told her it could have been sexually transmitted. Pam knew instantly it came from Richard. He talked about it in one of his most famous routines. Somebody told me you put it on your dick, you could fuck all night. Right? Shouldn't have told me that. 
he had been putting cocaine on his genitals, on his penis, and it was entering my body. And it could have been through his bloodstream as well. Pam stopped sleeping with Richard, but she didn't leave him. She hoped his latest drug relapse was just a bump in the road, that she could still change him. She realized she was wrong when Richard got a horse. A TV producer gave Richard a miniature horse as a gift. Her name was Ginger. Pam adored her. She fed and cared for Ginger in a stable behind Richard's house. But Richard also had dogs. Pam warned Richard to keep them away from Ginger. He did, for a while, until one day when the dogs got loose. They ran to the stable and pounced on Ginger. They formed a pack, and she was bleeding. Her intestines were coming out. She was attacked by Richard's dog. All the dogs, too many dogs. They formed a pack and chased her. She was prey. Pam was in Richard's house. She heard the attack and ran outside. She quickly turned a hose on the dogs until they ran off. Ginger lay on the ground, all torn up. She needed medical attention fast. Richard was distraught and completely unable to help. He didn't own a horse trailer. Pam took control. Okay, we are putting the horse in the backseat of my car. But it's a Jaguar. I know that's what we're doing. We're going to take the horse to the vet. Okay, we got it before she bleeds to death. And he was like crying, a little boy, failing. And I said, we're going to do it. We're going to save her life. Pam and Richard crammed Ginger into the Jaguar. Pam got behind the wheel and peeled out of the driveway. The horse was bleeding on the seats. Her head was out the, the one side and the tail's out the other. And Richard's sitting in the front seat. He's in his bathrobe and slippers crying and sobbing. They hit the freeway. Pam floored it. And the whole car is weaving because of the weight. And people are watching us driving there. And it's just black people in a Jaguar with a horse in the back seat going down the 405. And they were following us. There must have been like 20, 30 people following us. They pulled up to the animal hospital. Pam had called ahead, so the vets were expecting the horse. They worked on Ginger for five hours, stitching her up, treating her for shock. Pam stayed by Richard's side the whole time. He sat there and he cried and they saved her life. I helped save the horse. But I couldn't save him. The final blow to Pam and Richard's relationship took everyone by surprise. Rocco Urbisi found out at work. He was producing Richard Pryor's NBC variety show. He saw Richard almost every day. When Pam and Richard were dating, he came into my office and said, I'm going to be late for work tomorrow. I'm getting married. I said, well, fantastic, man. Great. Don't come in. We'll, we'll... No, no, I'll be in, but I'll be late in the afternoon. I said, great. Fantastic. <laughs> So I said, everybody, Richard's getting married. So I had Gene. He was our prop master on prior. What a fucking great guy he was. So Gene, make a big cake, man. Just make a fucking big cake. Because Richard's going to show up and we're going to have cake. Rocco told Gene to write, congratulations, Richard and Pam, on the cake. That's who he assumed Richard was marrying. So I'm getting dressed in the morning on NBC News. Says Richard Pryor got married today and blah, blah, blah. The news said that Richard's new wife was named Deborah McGuire. 
So I get back to the studio and everybody's a buzz. One of the other producers ran up to Rocco. He had gotten a call from Pam. So Pam Greer is coming over here to kill Richard. <laughs> hey, wait, what? He's going to drive over. He's going to kill him. So we had to have security at the gate because she showed up. Pam didn't show up, but Richard did. So in walks Richard with this young girl. And I forget there's a big cake that says, congratulations, Richard and Pam. And Gene starts rolling it out. And next to the cake is a prop table with a lot of plastic flowers. I picked them up and I jammed them in the cake. I just jammed it where I said, Richard and Pam, I just jammed the flowers in the middle of the cake. Gene laughed, we rolled the cake out, and that was it. Richard's marriage lasted just a few months. His marriages tended to end quickly. Richard reached out to Pam once more several years later. It was at his lowest point, but Pam wasn't having it. She was done with Richard Pryor. After the break, Pam returns to the movies by playing a murderer. Grease Lightning opened in July of 1977. It wasn't a hit. Part of the reason was timing. That summer was dominated by two other movies, Star Wars and Smokey and the Bandit. Pam was 28 years old. Her acting career suddenly stalled. A lot of Black creative talent wasn't really given the kind of appreciation or due that they should have been given. There was nothing being written for actors of real talent, male and female, but especially female. Sometimes Pam was told to show up at auditions wearing a bikini. She refused. Movie roles weren't coming in, so Pam turned to TV. She landed a small role in the miniseries Roots, The Next Generations, and on an episode of The Love Boat. One morning in 1980, Pam went jogging in Santa Monica, where she was recognized by a fellow jogger, an agent. And while I was running, this agent said, you're Pam Greer, you know what? We've been looking for someone who's built like you, sharp like you, for the Paul Newman movie. Do you have an agent? I said, mm, kind of, not really. I haven't been working. I just don't want to work for a while. The Paul Newman movie was Fort Apache, the Bronx, a police drama set in New York's toughest neighborhood. Paul Newman was famous for playing charming outlaws in movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting, and Cool Hand Luke. Now he was playing a cop. The role the producers couldn't cast, the role they wanted Pam for, was a villain, a violent sex worker addicted to heroin. Parts of the role were cliched, but Pam took it seriously. She didn't want to be just another stereotype. Playing a junkie is seriously hard. 
you got to observe junkies. You got to observe that. That's not a role you just step into and, and put on like a hat. I said, if I can get the time to study this character, two weeks. Okay. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll prepare. Pam lived by that credo. An actor is always prepared. She learned that early on when Roger Corman gave her that book by Stanislavski. She still needed to audition for Fort Apache the Bronx. The role wasn't hers yet. So she took her preparation to the next level. I went to New York and they put me up. Pam's first stop was a sex shop. There were plenty of those in New York. She bought a blonde wig, red stockings, a garter belt and stilettos. Then she toured Manhattan visiting the sketchiest parts of the city. It's scary. I did go to Avenue 10 near the trucks and hookers and 8 and 9 and, and Hell's Kitchen, and I went to junkie places, heroin houses and stuff, and observed. It was fucking scary. Pam went back to her hotel room and locked the door. She stayed there for the next few days. She cut her skirt short, she kept herself up at night with caffeine and sugar. She didn't shower. She barely slept. And when she did, she slept on the floor. The night before her audition, she ate a whole cherry pie. The next morning, she felt like crap. But she looked the part. She stumbled out of the hotel in full costume. My red stockings were showing, my garter belt, my ass, my short skirt, my blonde wig my Hello Sailor dress, and my Fuck Me Pumps. The police pulled up and asked me out for a date. The audition was at the Minskoff Theater, one of the fanciest theaters on Broadway. Security stopped her at the door. They weren't going to let me into the building because I looked like I was a drunken, heroin-addicted killer. And they wouldn't let me. I said, no, would you please... Tell them, Paul, no, no, that Pam Greer is here. And the sister said, oh, you ain't no Pam Greer. I said, I know. It's been a long day. I really am. Uh, please, I'm here to see them uh, for an audition. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I almost broke my character, just her attitude. You know, she, I thought she was going to beat me up and kick me out the door for trying to be Pam Greer. And say, my name's Pam Greer and get it. Oh, no, you ain't, bitch. I whoop your You ain't no Pam Greer. I know who Pam Greer. I know what she looked like. I didn't want to get into that. She was a big sister. Pam convinced them to call the producer, who said, yes, we're expecting Pam Greer. They let her through to the production office. The hallway was packed with actresses, all of them auditioning for the same part. We had a couple, we had at least two days of people, so maybe that's... 10 people to it, maybe 20, maybe 25. That's Haywood Gould. He wrote Fort Apache, the Bronx. Pam calls him Woody. I remember I came in in the morning and looked on the audition list, and I saw her name was on it, which was great. I was a big fan of hers from the 70s movies. I said, this is great. But then when we started the auditions, I went outside and looked outside. She wasn't there. So I thought, ah, she blew off the audition, doesn't want to do it or whatever. And then... Uh, the casting lady, Lois Planko, said, okay, now I'm going to go out and get Pam. And she came in. I guess she'd been hiding. To, didn't want anybody to see her. She wanted to, you know, have a shock effect, which she did have. I didn't knock on the door. I kicked the door. You I kicked, kicked it, it open. 
I, no, I just kicked on it three times. I didn't knock on it. It was a lady knocks, knock, knock, knock. No, I'm going to kick the damn door. <laughs> Woody Go, the writer, Ford Apache Brown, answers the door. And he goes, oh, wow. Hey, Pam, how are you? How was your trip? How was your flight? Oh, shut the fuck up. I ain't flown anywhere. Who's in the room? Paul Newman, Dan Petrie, the director, and David Suskind. David Suskind was the producer. And so she came in dressed as the part, as the character. Told in character, wardrobe, makeup, the whole thing crazy. You know, junky, you know, flipped out. And uh, really terrorized the whole room, including me. And, I mean, her reading was unreal. Everyone watched while Haywood did the audition with Pam. He read off the script. Pam had it memorized. So you're going to read with Woody. Okay, hurry up. You know how to read, motherfucking shit. Sit down. She was frightening. She came right up to me and kind of, you know, waved the... I mean, there was no knife in her hand, but she was waving her, her hand right in front of me. They said, we're going to start here. I said, okay, we'll do the lines. And then the rest is off book, okay? Because I'm going to shoot up in here. She was completely intense. She was in the role. And um, we were gape-jawed <laughs> and silent during this audition. I do the lines. I'm not finished now. The dialogue is finished. And I sit... I do a lap dance on Woody Gold's lap, and he drops the book, and everybody's laughing. <laughs> and I'm saying, just put the book over your crush. We don't want to see anything. You know, you're okay. <laughs> I gave him a pure ass lap dance. Uh, she, she, she was very, very close to me, and she did put her arms around my ne- me at one point. You know, she's like a snake, but she calls herself a snake in the scene. Did you ever see a snake? And I shoot up, continue the scene, ad-libbing, and then I just lean up against the wall, and I get high, and I start nodding out, and I slide down I s- to the floor, and I pass out. And Paul Newman starts applauding. What do you say at the end of it? He says, you got the part. And I said, can I call my mom? Yes, you can call your mom because we want you here for rehearsal the whole time. We'll send you back home to get your stuff and send you back here and you'll be here for like 10 weeks. That's got to be validating. It's got to feel good. More than that. More than that. Because you, you make these choices of making an absolute fool of yourself. I just felt that I had breathed some energy into this character, some life. Pam told her friends the good news. She had landed the role of Charlotte, the killer junkie. Their reaction was nearly unanimous. Don't take the part. If you're a movie star, you don't get killed. You don't die. You shouldn't die. You should be the icon, the movie star. They never die. Otherwise, shut up. I'm going (laughs) to die for Paul Newman. Okay. (laughs) Production started right away on Fort Apache. Pam had rehearsals, costume fittings, hair and makeup tests. In her spare time, she watched Paul Newman work, how he studied every word, how he'd tweak his delivery on each take. Pam had been a star. Her personal life was in magazines. She was recognized on the street. But working with Paul Newman, this was something else. This was no B-movie. This was a chance to prove herself as an actress, a chance to earn some real respect. She plays this menacing hooker. She goes through the movie just, uh, you know, wiping people out. She starts the movie 
by killing the cops. And it's a really important moment because I think the, the audience was now knew what they were getting themselves into when she plays this terrifying scene and she shoots these two cops. And so she actually sets the tone for what's to follow and totally steals the picture. You uh, been partying, baby? See, I've been partying all the time. <laughs> I'm a party girl. She improved the line in the first scene, which is um, she's supposed to say to the um, cops, that's not my job. That's the line I wrote. And she said, See, I'm on my J-O-B too. And that became a, what, I guess what you'd call a meme. Everybody went around the set. If you tell somebody to do something, they'd go, ah, that's not my J-O-B. She changed that line. It's a simple change that a good actor can do when that actor is in the character. And when the actor is in a character as far as Pam was, they really can't say anything wrong. Hello, lover. You want to go out? We knew how great Newman was going to be, and he is great. And Pam had been in exploitation movies. She'd been in movies where she was great. But to go that deep into a character as she did, and to prefer, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the years who told me, boy, that's a frightening, wow. Well, if I was selling it, baby, you sure couldn't afford it. But I'm going to give it up because I like you. Pam had played killers before, but this character, Charlotte the Junkie, wasn't just damaged, she was deranged. Getting into that mindset left a mark. I'd had nightmares for a while. Charlotte with the razor blades in her teeth, killing a man in the neck, and graphic scenes that I saw in my preparation, they, they haunt you. You know, we shot a location, and there were a lot of things going on while we were shooting because the precinct was still in operation. So there were a lot of sirens blasting and cops rolling around and crimes being committed. A lot of burglaries were committed on the set. You know, we had people protesting the movie, picketing the movie, picketing me. I was threatened by a nun who said, we're going to chain you to a chair and uh, make you rewrite the script. We were bombed one night uh, from an L track. They threw bottles down on the set from the top of the subway, and the cops ran up the stairs to try to get them, and they ran away. So it was a unique kind of experience to making a movie. The committee against Ford Apache also protested today in front of several other New York theaters. One demonstrator says the film is not fair in its depiction of blacks, Hispanics, and women living in that area of the Bronx. The film is a racist film. It presents a very unrealistic picture of our community. It makes statements such as that our community is to blame for the poverty and the things that, are, that affect our community. I got a good story about Pam. A crowd got rowdy at one point in front of her trailer. A bunch of kids got crazy. They were screaming and yelling and uh, trying to disrupt the shooting. And, you know, and she came out of her trailer and said, if you guys don't behave, I'm going to get my cousin Rosie after you. And her cousin was Roosevelt Greer. He's an all-pro defensive tackle for the New York Giants. And, and they knew who he was. And they went, oh, yeah. And then they, she totally melted them. They just loved her. Oh, Pam, sorry, Pam. Oh, can you give us an autograph and this and that? And she handed out a bunch of 8 by 10s Everybody was happy after that. By the way, Rosie Greer is not Pam's cousin, but she pretended he was when she needed to. Fort Apache took three months to shoot. Pam lived inside her character the whole time. 
She didn't sleep much. She lost weight. In the movie, you can see dark circles under her eyes. That wasn't makeup. And I get a call on the set, and it's from Jim Brown. They said, Pam, someone needs to speak with you. It's Jim Brown about an accident. Jim Brown was a Hall of Famer in the NFL before a second career as a exploitation star. He was also a close friend of Richard Pryor. Ms. Jim said, Pam, Richard Pryor had an accident. He burned himself up. Richard Pryor was almost fatally burned in a freak accident. Richard Pryor, critically burned Monday night. You understand that you have a man who still has a 50% burn on third-degree nature. He was very, very sick. It was all over the news, a fireball exploding in Richard's home. Pam guessed, correctly, that Richard caused the explosion by freebasing cocaine. <sighs> I said freebasing with that tube or thing, yeah. And he wants to see you. They think he won't make it through the night. He's not going to live. And he wanted to see you before he died. So we're sending a private plane to pick you up. And I said, I'm working. This is my job. He's not going to mess it up. I said, I ain't doing it. My love, I'm showing him love by not coming. And Jim said, that sure was cold. <laughs> it was cold, Pam. That was cold. Pissed Richard off, made him want to live to beat my ass, smack me around, call me bitch. <laughs> Richard Pryor did survive his burns. Pam never left the set of Ford Apache. When we wrapped, she went around and she said, I'm going to give you guys a photo. So everybody expected, you know, like kind of a, a cheesecakey photo of Pam Greer. In one of her roles, like coffee, one of the roles that she played. And instead, she gave us snapshots that they were taking when she was a five-year-old girl in Denver in a snowstorm. So it's a five-year-old girl with a snowsuit on in front of an old car. And that's the picture that she gave us. Haywood Gould still has the black and white photo. Pam is a little girl, bundled up, hood on, standing in the street next to a 1950s Pontiac. Behind her is a house with a white picket fence and a couple of bare trees. The DP, John Alcott, said, oh, I'm disappointed. I said, yeah, me too, we all are. So that was Pam's little joke on all of us, you know. Ford Apache the Bronx hit theaters in February 1981. It immediately hit number one at the box office and got good reviews, especially for Pam. Newman and his partner have a run-in with a pimp and his prostitute, played by Pam Greer. It was just that I achieved the goals that I needed to meet in such a short time. It was really something for me that I learned that I didn't think I had or could do. Fort Apache helped Pam's career, but only in a limited way. The movie was over two hours long, and Pam was on screen for less than nine minutes. Compare that to Coffee or Foxy Brown or even Sheba Baby, where she's in almost every scene, where she's the star. As the 80s went on, Pam took on more supporting roles, but good parts, really good parts, like Charlotte, were still few and far between. Hollywood still didn't know what to do with Pam Greer. She was struggling. She was looking for things to do that were not genre of exploitation titles, and it wasn't easy. She was still trapped in that 
sexploitation, blaxploitation role of the you know, strong aggressor woman, but it was not who she was as a person. And it took someone like Tarantino to get past the cliches and find the real character. Next week on our season finale, the hottest director in Hollywood gives Pam the role of a lifetime. I want it to sound like a Pam Greer movie. I want it to have a Pam Greer opening credit sequence. I want the poster to reflect a Pam Greer poster. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Special thanks to Bruce Shapiro at Columbia University's Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.